Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and Corridor Aesthetics.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. My guest for most of today's program is Jim Obergefell. Obergefell was at the heart of a landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision and ruling in 2015 that many of us remember quite well. It may be even one of those historic days that you remember where you were when that decision was handed down. So historic was the high court's ruling on that day. Uh, The ruling in the summer of 2015 guaranteed the fundamental right of marriage to same-sex couples. Uh, Jim Obergefell was the lead plaintiff in that case. Immediately following the decision, on June 26, 2015, Obergefell addressed a crowd from the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court. Today's ruling from the Supreme Court affirms what millions across this country already know to be true in our hearts. Our love is equal. That the four words etched onto the front of the Supreme Court, equal justice under law, apply to us, too. All Americans deserve equal dignity, respect, and treatment when it comes to the recognition of our relationships and families. Now, at long last, Ohio will recognize our marriage, and most important, marriage equality will come to every every state across our country. It's my hope that the term gay marriage will soon be a thing of the past, that from this day forward, it will simply be marriage. And our nation will be better off because of it. Next Tuesday, Jim Obergefell will be here in Iowa to speak on the campus of the University of Iowa. Next Tuesday, February 28th at 7 p.m. at the Iowa Memorial Union on the UI campus. Jim Obergefell joins us live by phone today. Welcome to our program. What a pleasure to have you on, Jim. Well, thanks, Ben. I'm thrilled to be here, and I appreciate the invitation. Here's your chance, uh, River to River listeners. Do you have a question for Jim Obergefell? Maybe you'd just like to express how this case, this ruling back from 2015, changed your life or the life of a loved one. 1-866-780-9100. 1-866-780-9100. Or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. I'd like to have you tell us, Jim, the story of your case, which... I'm sure you've told hundreds, if not thousands of times since 2015. But before that, we played a little bit of tape from you in 2015. Take us back to that moment uh, when you heard this historic decision. What, uh, what was your reaction? Well, Ben, sitting in that courtroom and when I realized that what Justice Kennedy was saying was that our marriage deserved to exist and that same-sex couples deserve the right to marry across the United States, that that right was affirmed. Of course, my first thought was I missed my husband, John, and I wish that he could be there to experience that and to know that our marriage could never be erased by the state we called home. And then I was surprised to feel and realize that I felt for the first time as an out gay man, like an equal American. And that wasn't something I I necessarily expected to feel, but that was a very strong, wonderful realization sitting in that courtroom as that news sank in. Mm -hmm. What about a feeling of of pride in your country, in your nation, in the high court for making this decision? 
Well, absolutely. You know, we look at the Supreme Court as this body that interprets our Constitution and embodies those four words, as I mentioned that day, those four words in the pediment of their very building, equal justice under law. And I was quite proud that our nation, that court had lived up to that promise, to those four words. And it was this moment where our nation took a step forward and making sure that we were all part of We the People. Jim, I'd like to have you talk about more current times and the the current. I know you're you're an activist for LGBTQ um, causes now. I'm sure you'll be talking about that when you come to Iowa next week. But before that, I'm sure our listeners would love to have you recount the story of how you became the lead plaintiff in this landmark 2015 case. Um, it was not something you set out to do. In fact, you refer to yourself, I believe, as an accidental advocate. And we'd love to hear more uh, about your late husband, because you'd had a relationship with him for somewhat 20 years uh, with John, and it, it, it culminated um, in a way for the nation um, in a, um, a, a medical plane flight. Uh, tell us uh, about meeting your husband and what led up to this case. Absolutely. You know, I was fortunate enough to meet and fall in love with John. And we met three times. The first time I was still closeted and he scared me because he was comfortable in his own skin. The second time we met, I was newly out as a gay man. Third time we met was at a New Year's Eve party at his house. And we became a couple. John liked to say for us, it wasn't love at first sight. It was love at third sight. And we very, we very quickly built a life together. And early on in our relationship, I would say within the first two years at most, we talked about marriage and how we wanted to be able to commit to each other and to, and to get married. But we agreed that for us, it couldn't just be symbolic. So knowing that for us, it had to be something that carried legal weight, we just assumed we would never have the ability or the right to get married, but we still built our life together. Well, things took a turn, an unexpected turn early in 2012 when I noticed a symptom that John was having as he was walking around our condo. Um, it sounded like one foot was slapping the, fo- the floor harder than the other. And after a series of doctor visits and specialists, John was diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease in June of 2012. And that wasn't something we were expecting. And it's also a diagnosis that has one outcome. It's a death sentence, usually within two to five years of diagnosis. And within about a year, well, by April of 2013, he started at-home hospice care, and I was his full-time caregiver. And that's what you do when you love somebody. You take care of them, no matter how hard, no matter how overwhelming or challenging it is. And I love John. You know, this was our 20th year together, and I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And then June 26, 2013, I'm standing next to his bed holding his hand as the news comes out from the Supreme Court that they had struck down the Defense of Marriage Act with their decision in United States versus Windsor. And I spontaneously proposed because I realized this was our the first time in our time together that marriage could actually be something legal for us. And at least the federal government would recognize us. And as you mentioned, um, our marriage took place inside a chartered medical jet. 
that we took from Cincinnati to Baltimore, Washington International Airport. And John's Aunt Paulette officiated for us inside that airplane. And that was all we wanted, simply to get married and live out John's remaining days as husband and husband. But because of a story about us in the newspaper, two days after we got married, we were connected with a civil rights attorney who pulled out a blank Ohio death certificate in our very first meeting five days after our marriage. And he said, do you guys understand that when John dies, this death certificate, his last official record as a person will be wrong because where it says marital status, Ohio will type in unmarried. And here where it says surviving spouse, Jim, your name isn't going to be there. And it broke our hearts, but I think more importantly, it made us angry. And when this attorney, Al Gerhardstein, asked if we wanted to do something about it, John and I discussed it. And John said, absolutely, Jim, but it's all on your shoulders because I can't do anything because he was completely bedridden. And we decided to file suit against the state of Ohio, demanding recognition of our lawful Maryland marriage at the time he died. Yeah. I think many must wonder in this, as you so eloquently recount that story, how did you balance your grief with the loss of a of your partner there, uh, your husband, um, at the same time that you were being thrust into the center of this national debate in this hugely important Supreme Court case? It certainly wasn't easy. You know, we filed suit 11 days after we got married. We won that, or we filed suit nine days after we got married. We won in federal district court 11 days after we got married. And John died three months later to the day. But he did die a married man, and that was what we wanted. And it was after that point, you know, I was trying to figure out what my life could be like. What what would I do without John? And what would what would my life be? And then when the state of Ohio appealed and we ended up at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, along with case, another case from Ohio and cases from Kentucky, Tennessee and Michigan, you know, I, I just kept fighting. And for me, it was always living up to my promises to John, my promises to love, honor and protect him. And there was no way I was going to stop fighting for that. I was never going to stop fighting for my husband, for our, for our marriage to exist. And even when we lost at the Sixth Circuit, I, I had to keep going. And, and honestly, Ben, my grief, one of the things that helped me get through this was the fact that I got to talk about John constantly. I got to share our story. I got to talk about him and say what kind of a person he was and what, what this fight meant to me and what it meant to us. So that's really what helped me keep going. But then also understanding what a huge change this potentially held for, for the entire country and the, and the difference it could make in millions of people's lives. That's yeah. what gave me courage and, and, and the strength to keep going. Right. Um, Kelly from Dubuque, listening to our program, called to say um, that her wife um, gave birth to our child, but the decision in 2015 allowed us both to be listed on the birth certificate. So um, how many stories, how many people have approached you over the years with uh, these kind of remarks? Uh, Probably countless. Oh, Ben, I wish I had thought to keep track of that because it would be in the thousands upon thousands of people. And I have to say, I love it. It happens constantly. It happens on, on the street. It happens in airplanes. It happens 
all over the place. And some people might say, well, Jim, don't you really get annoyed by this? Or do you feel like you've lost your anonymity? And like you never once have I been unhappy that that happens because every time someone recognizes me and shares something personal with me, it's really meaningful and it just reinforces why John and I did this and yeah. why I kept fighting. I love it. I will never, ever get tired of that happening. Jim Obergefell, please stay with us. Uh, joining us live by phone today, I believe from Ohio, uh, civil rights advocate, lead plaintiff in the 2015 U.S. Supreme Court case, Obergefell, that uh, made same-sex marriage the law of the land. We'll be back in just a moment. Join us, one 780 Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. We are back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Joining us live by phone, Jim Obergefell, the civil rights advocate now, lead plaintiff in the 2015 U.S. Supreme Court case, Obergefell, which uh, uh, granted uh, uh, same-sex marriage uh, uh, in this country, uh, marriage equality. Uh, to all in this country. Join us, 1-866-780-9100, or River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, I want to get to more some Iowa-specific questions here, but uh, generally speaking, uh, Jim, what is the nature of the focus of your activism now? Well, at this point, it's continuing my advocacy for the LGBTQ plus community, and that's being on the board of several organizations, including the Mattachine Society of Washington, D.C., the GLBT Historical Society, WebQ. It's also being very involved with um, Family Equality, which is a national organization advocating for queer families and those who want to form them. Used to be on staff, and I am st- continue to be very involved with them. Plus, I have a wine label, and all of our wines support organizations fighting for equality, so that's LGBTQ plus rights, women's rights, immigrants' rights. And also after having run for office in Ohio this past election, I am also taking some time to, to be a little bit quieter and figure out how I want to focus going forward. But I'm keeping busy, that's for certain. Yeah, right. You, you ran for office in, in Ohio. How was that experience? You lost. You decided to run for the Ohio legislature. You lost that bid. bid. Uh, um, what kind of uh, experience was it? You know, it was a great experience. And running for office, much like going to the Supreme Court, wasn't something I ever thought I would do. But it was an idea that was planted in my mind on July 4th, 2015, of all, of all days. And when I moved back to my hometown in Ohio, it'll be two years in June, Someone approached, and I moved home without any plan of running, but someone suggested, well, would you consider running for the Ohio House of Representatives? And I realized it was the right time and the right place. And it was a good experience. There was something really wonderful about going door to door and talking with people and listening to them. And the surprise that I heard again and again, well, we've never had 
anyone knock on our door who's running for office. And we were really surprised and people just really, really enjoyed that and appreciated that. And I, I decided to run because Ohio, there, there are a lot of bad things, not good things happening in Ohio, much like in, in Iowa. And I wanted to be part of the solution. I wanted to be a sane, rational, and decent voice at the table when when these harmful laws are proposed. And it didn't work out, but that's okay. I put my, myself out there and I let people know that I care and I want to make things better. And who knows what the future holds, but it was a great experience. We all know that uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned last year. Uh, you and many others have expressed fears um, based on that ruling, that overturned ruling, uh, fears for marriage equality, that it's not secure. Explain the reasoning there. Why uh, are, are you concerned, especially with that? Right. Well, you know, the Dobbs decision was a terrible, dark day for this country when the right to make decisions about your own body, to, the right to bodily autonomy is denied, taken away. That's a dark day for this nation. And to lose that, that right means all of our rights are at risk. And I'm especially worried about marriage equality, the right to intimate relations behind closed doors in the privacy of your own home, and the right to birth control because of Justice Thomas's concurring opinion, where he calls out those three decisions specifically as ones that should be looked at again and reconsidered and, in his opinion, overturned. And that scares me because we have a judiciary across this country that has taken a right, a hard right turn, and every right we enjoy is at risk. And especially marriage equality, the fact that Justice Thomas mentioned that, mentioned Obergefell v. Hodges specifically, made me especially angry because Justice Thomas's very own marriage exists only because of a Supreme Court decision. And yet he, he ignored that, forgot that, that decision. So I am worried about marriage equality. I'm worried about many of the rights we enjoy in this country because of that Dobbs decision, the rationale used in that in that decision, plus then Justice Thomas's concurrence. Yeah, I think you're referring to. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but uh, interracial marriage uh, was outlawed in some states up until a Supreme Court decision in the late '60s, perhaps. Nine, correct, 1967, Loving versus Virginia, and you know, the, in the Dobbs decision, the rationale they used to overturn that decision is that rights in our country need to have a long history or tradition in our nation. Well, interracial marriage, there's a much longer history in our nation of disallowing interracial marriage than there is of affirming it and guaranteeing that right. And plus this argument that only rights that are specifically written out in the Constitution should be considered rights. That's a very dangerous thing because many of the rights we all enjoy as Americans, they're not rights that are actually written out specifically in the Constitution. So it's a very dangerous decision, in my, in my opinion. If you've just joined us, my guest for this portion of the program, Jim Obergefell, civil rights advocate, lead plaintiff in the 2015 U.S. Supreme Court case uh, that uh, guaranteed uh, marriage equality for same-sex couples. 
You're coming to Iowa on Tuesday to speak on the University of Iowa campus at the Memorial Union in the evening. Anyone can come and see you. Uh, Tell us how you see Iowa when it comes to LGBTQ uh, civil rights. Well, just listening to the news at the beginning of the hour, I'm looking at Iowa much the same way I look at Ohio, where there is an extreme right-wing supermajority or majority in the state house that is using their power not to make things better for all Iowans or Ohioans, but they are using their power to target specific minority groups, specifically specifically the LGBTQ plus community. You know, Ohio tried to pass a don't say gay law that was worse than Florida's. Sounds like Iowa is trying to do the same thing. Um, the, these laws that are saying you can't teach or acknowledge the existence of the queer community in school, that's nothing but a smokescreen. Well, a very, I shouldn't even call it a smokescreen. It's just a very obvious way of telling us that the people in power despise us. They don't believe we are citizens worthy of the same rights, the same equality, and it's dangerous. So I really do. Unfortunately, I see Iowa in much the same light I see Ohio right now, and it's not a good light. Mm -hmm. It, It is dangerous, and it's discriminatory, and it is, in my opinion, the very antithesis of what this country is supposed to be about. Yeah. Let me push back and get your reaction a little bit here, Jim, because uh, what's being discussed here in Iowa sets new standards for what students can and can't learn, establishes more control for parents over their children's education of age restrictions on discussions with transgender students. Uh, HPV vaccine is also part of this more parental scrutiny of library books, uh, prohibiting teachers from using nicknames for students other than what's on their birth certificate. Um, Also a provision in uh, a proposal that would require schools to notify parents if their child expresses a gender identity different from their biological um, sex. Uh, Isn't there a a case to be made about parental rights? Uh, uh, Shouldn't parents have the final say on these items in their child's education? Parents absolutely have rights when it comes to their children. However, schools are safe places for children. Schools are supposed to be a place where a child can feel safe, secure, and learn. And these types of laws, these types of demands are not respecting that safe place for children. It is making it less safe for children who, are, who do not conform to a binary male-female world. And uh, one particular thing you mentioned, they would require teachers to only use the names on birth certificates. Well, my name on, the name on my birth certificate is James. I don't go by James. I go by Jim. Would I get in trouble? Would that teacher get in trouble for calling me Jim? I think this is, I think it's ridiculous. It's harmful. And I would love to know in what elementary school sex is being taught. They use this, this whole claim about sexual instruction, meaning they don't want anyone in a school acknowledging the existence of the LGBTQ plus community as if 
Susie in fourth grade who mentions her two moms or who to, her two dads, that is not teaching, that is not sexual instruction. That is simply acknowledging reality that queer people exist. There are same-sex couples. They have children. But yet these laws are intended to prevent that. But on the other hand, Bobby in fourth grade talks about his mom and dad, no different than Susie talking about her two dads. Well, Bobby won't get in trouble because Bobby's family conforms to this very strict, very black and white binary world, which science proves again and again doesn't exist. Is there, Jim, common ground that you see that could satisfy both concerns, those who say again and again, it's not about not recognizing transgender identities, it's about parental rights. Do you see common ground that could satisfy both those concerned with parental rights and those uh, concerned with a healthy upbringing of, of children, also transgender children? Well, you know, I guess I would love to see the proof or an example of a discussion about the existence of transgender people or a transgender child in school. I would love to see the proof, the evidence that that happening, the existence of a transgender kid or using the pronouns they prefer or the name they prefer or talking about it, I would love to see the proof that that suddenly makes another child in that classroom decide they're transgender. It doesn't. So until the, the people proposing these laws and pushing these laws and attacking the transgender community and the LGBTQ plus community, really anyone who's different, until they stop using these made up threats, I'm not sure what the common ground is. Yeah. Because they are not, they're, they're not operating from reality. They're operating from a place of, we don't like people who are different and we're going to do everything we can to make sure they know we don't like them and to make them less than under the law. Jim, I have to believe you have been for many years the target of a, a lot of um, speech um, um, that uh, is, is very hurtful. What, uh, what's your comment on that? And, and I guess, moreover, how do you stand that? How do you uh, keep yourself safe from uh, what I assume are, are very harmful utterances, uh, emails, and so forth? Well, you know, this, this is one of those questions that always, one of my answers that always surprises people. I, I honestly have to say I, I have been incredibly fortunate. In the two years of the case, from the moment we filed suit until the Supreme Court decision, never once did I have anyone come up to me in person and attack me or come after me I got two pieces of mail that were less than supportive. They weren't even that terrible. They were just, in essence, telling me I was going to hell. That mm. has really been it. I've been very fortunate. But I think part of that has been because John's and my story is a story of love and loss. And people can relate to that. People can, they can connect to loving someone and then that person they love dying. So I've been really fortunate. I will say, though, Ben, I'm starting to, to find myself, I find myself wondering more and more when that's going to start changing. 
because I do expect that to happen just because of the, the, the division in this country and the, the, the hate directed towards the LGBTQ plus community. So, you know, I, I don't focus on it. I try to be aware of where I am and what's around me, who's around me, but I don't let it control my life. I really don't. Jim, comment on that, the, the current political climate in the U.S. in 2023, how that's changed since the 2015 uh, Supreme Court decision becoming even more partisan. What, in your opinion, is is driving the division to even more extremes? The only thing I can come up with, and I'm certain there, there, there are probably multiple things causing this, but in my opinion, it is the white the white majority that used to be in this country had all of the power the white christians had all of the power and as our nation has moved forward as society has progressed and as we've learned more about humanity and about humankind and about society we are making changes we we are we are making things better for people who are not white christian heteronormative and the white Christian heteronormative people, many of them, not all of them, far from all of them, but many of them, unfortunately, many of them in positions of power, they are, they are worried about losing their, their power, their control, their, their influence. And that, in my opinion, that's what's driving it. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you saw this new polling, and we have just over a minute left, uh, uh, Jim. New polling from Gallup uh, from a few days ago on the share of U.S. adults who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer. Gallup found that the percentage of adults who identify as LGBTQ increased slightly. It's around 7%. Um, That's double the percentage of those surveyed in 2012. But what's interesting, significantly higher percentages um, for young Americans, Gen Z, these are ages 19 to 26, are the most likely to identify as LGBTQ, about 20%. What does this tell you about the future of LGBTQ civil rights and the, the politics involved here? Well, it gives me hope. And that's been my answer really since the decision when people ask what, what continues to give me hope. It's the younger generation because they do not see differences the way older generations do. And they, they don't understand the focus on differences. They just, they just don't get it. And they, they are also growing up in a world that's vastly different, even with all of the problems and, problems, and even with the, the division and the backlash against marriage equality and the LGBTQ plus community, they're still growing up in a more supportive world than what I grew up in and what people older than I am grew up in. So they give me hope. And that's what I look forward to. I look forward to a better world because of them. Jim Obergefell, thank you very much for for joining us for this portion of the program. We appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. You too. It's River to River from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Glad you're on board for this Friday, the 24th of February. Well, bills are advancing at the Iowa State House concerning both gun safety and gun 
Rights. Uh, I'm joined now by IPR reporter Grant Gerlach. Hi, Grant. Hi, Ben. Let's take the firearms in cars uh, proposals here advancing in the uh, the Iowa House. Uh, what would they do? Yeah, this is a bill in the House that would expand gun rights to carry uh, a firearm, as you mentioned, in your car. Um, so this affects several different places that a person might be. It says you can keep your gun in your car at a corrections facility uh, while you're at work, uh, at a school, a community college, or a public university. So just to break some of those down, when it comes to work, it says that an employer cannot prohibit an employee from keeping a gun or ammunition out of sight in a locked car, like in the parking lot while they're at work. And mm. so, um, you know, this measure is aimed at allowing legal gun owners to, uh, to take their gun with them when they, when they leave to go, for, go to work. They don't have to leave it home. They can just leave it in their car while they go to work. They can come out and, and have it with them as they please um, on their way home. That's the idea of, of the bill. Yeah, Grant. So what are the arguments for change here? I know scenarios are put forward when this would be needed to have a gun in your car with ammunition. Well, Republicans in the legislature have been pushing over the last several years to expand gun rights in Iowa and uh, to make it easier to carry a gun and to to have a gun in, in different situations. They're primarily thinking of having a gun to use uh, for self-defense purposes. Um, And they believe that a car should be looked at as uh, a private place, Uh, you know, a person, a place where a person can have um, the rights of of private property ownership, including gun ownership. There was testimony in in the subcommittee from uh, a representative from a, a business group in Iowa who said that this challenges the property rights of private companies to control what employees can bring to the work site. Um, You know, they have an interest in saying whether a gun can be in the parking lot, much less in the building. Um, So it does kind of pose these two different kinds of rights against each other. In this situation, um, the Republican lawmakers behind the bill are siding on what they see as the personal privacy rights of a private citizen to own a gun as um, over the private company rights to decide where a gun can be on their site. Yeah, Grant, by the way you're describing this, it sounds like uh, support and opposition to this proposal uh, divides along party lines, mostly or entirely. Mostly, but it's a little bit unusual to see Uh, business interest groups go against other Republican priorities. This is one where they would like to withhold their, um, their ability to control what's happening at their, on their own company property, even though the, the law does include immunity from liability if something were to happen, um, related to the gun that was in somebody's car, even with that, uh, immunity there, this particular group was, was against the bill. But yes, there was also opposition from um, from gun safety groups, gun control groups, and Democrats against this bill. Mm-hmm. 
I wonder if uh, road rage, we hear about that in the news, has come up in any of the the, the, the testimony, any of the debate so far. Seems having a, a gun um, uh, loaded in your car while on the highway, um, well, adds up to one step away from a, a dangerous road rage uh, scenario. You know, that didn't come up in the subcommittee, but that is another change that this uh, that this bill would make. Under current law, if you have a gun in your car, it's supposed to be unloaded and put away. Uh, but under this bill, that um, that part of the law would be repealed so that you could carry, uh, could openly carry a, a loaded gun in your car. Hmm. Oh. Uh, let's shift to another aspect here, gun safety. And um, in your reporting, you pointed out that a study based on CDC data showed that in 2020, gun injuries were the number one cause of death among children in our country. That is uh, an amazing and a tragic statistic that we have to carry with us as Americans. Another bill moving through the House concerning gun safety at school. Tell us about that. Yeah, this has to do with gun safety education in schools. And under the uh, original bill, which may be changing, but under the original bill, it said that the Department of Ed should develop um, model curriculum for schools to use for firearm safety in K-12 schools. And for kindergarten to fifth grade, they, they wanted the, under the bill, they wanted the program to be based on the Eddie Eagle program from the National Rifle Association. And then for sixth to 12th grade, it would be based on the NRA's hunter education course. Uh, so in the original bill, it's, it's directly spelling out that this should be based on um, materials and programs developed by the NRA. There could be changes to that. Uh, under amendments that are expected on the bill. And there was some pushback from uh, groups testifying against the bill in subcommittee. They didn't feel like it should be, it should spell out that it has to be something that the NRA put together that schools use to talk about gun safety. Mm-hmm. Let's listen to a little bit of um, the character that you mentioned, Eddie Eagle. Um, this is some audio from an Eddie Eagle video uh, put out by the NRA, uh, recorded from YouTube. And just to picture this scene, uh, cartoon kids, while they're actually kids who are different types of colorful birds, they're hanging out on an outdoor basketball court. When one of them discovers a backpack with a handgun in it, uh, the kids then discuss, they wonder what to do with it until Eddie Eagle swoops in with guidance uh, in the form of a very catchy tune. You'll know when he enters uh, with his tune. Let's listen. Did you leave a backpack over here? <gasps> I thought it was yours. Mine has ice cream stains on it. Oh, good point. <gasps> a gun. Hum, I've never seen a real gun before. I dare you to touch it. Touch what? <gasps> oh, my. Carrie! It's not mine. I don't know where it came from. What should we do? Let's take it to the police. Let's take it over to my mom. She has a gun at home. She'll know what to do. It looks just like the ones on TV. And in my video game. Stop! Don't touch. Run away. Tell a grown-up. Stop. Don't touch. Run away. Tell a grown-up. What? Why? Are you singing? 
I learned it from my dad. It helps me remember what to do if I ever come across a gun. Hey, I learned this song at school. Stop, don't touch, run away, tell the cronut. Stop, don't touch. Some audio from an Eddie Eagle video produced by the uh, NRA there. Um, so so this, um, this bill does have some, um, actually a co-sponsor who's a Democrat in the House, right? Well, yeah, that's one of the things that's interesting about this bill. It's proposed by uh, Republican Representative Skylar Wheeler from Hull, who's the chair of the Education Committee, and uh, Representative Akeo Abdul-Samad from Des Moines, who's a Democrat. And uh, Akeo Abdul-Samad also uh, has uh, Creative Visions. It's a nonprofit in Des Moines that works on uh, several different uh, anti-violence programs, programs to prevent gun violence in the city and to respond to gun violence in the city. And so, you know, I had never heard of Eddie Eagle, but now we've heard part of it. You can hear that it's, you know, it's aimed at kids. It's uh, it's a cartoon, it's animated. And he said in the subcommittee, you know, you may have reservations about using um, material that's created by the NRA, but look at the video. It's a cartoon that could appeal to kids. And to him, that was the, the main yeah. thing, is to try to get a message across to kids that... Um, of how they should respond if they find a gun in in any environment. And according to Abdul Samad, there have been kids who have come to his uh, his agency who have found guns in a backpack in the park. Like that's literally happened. And kids have brought uh, guns to his agency to be to to adults to yeah. to respond to. Moms Demand Action is a group that opposes the bill. Why? Because they think the the responsibility for gun safety shouldn't be on kids. It should be on grown-ups being more responsible gun owners if they're going to be gun owners. And so they want to see stronger rules around gun ownership and um, safe uh, storage and um, safety procedures for adults to store their guns and keep them away from kids in the first place. They want to see more emphasis on that instead of of um, teaching kids how to respond if they come across a gun. Now, Representative Abdul, Abdul Samad said that's important to him too, and that he doesn't see this as, as the bill that solves the whole problem, but a place to start so that this message gets across to kids in one way or another, and, and they can do other things to, to work with adults and work within the community to, um, to promote gun safety and to try to prevent gun violence. Okay. Thank you very much. IPR reporter Grant Gerlach uh, talking about uh, bills advancing currently at the Iowa State House concerning uh, gun safety and gun rights. Thank you so much, Grant. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. And that brings us to the end of this February 24th edition of River to River. And you know, transitions can be tricky things, including the transition from the work week into the weekend. And that's why we like to typically end our Friday shows by grooving into the weekend with one of our IPR Studio One team. In this case, Mark Simmet is with us. Hi, Mark. Well, hi, Ben. You know, I was thinking about how we sort of straddle often the political into the musical in this part of the program. And I, I saw online that on this date, February 24th in 1988, at a concert in Phoenix, Alice Cooper claimed he was running for governor of Arizona representing the Wild Party, and his slogan was, 
a troubled man for troubled times. What do you think of that? <laughs> I, I like that. That's a good slogan and a good party name. Okay, if he thought 1988 was troubled, I wonder what he, th- <laughs> he thinks of uh, 2023. Anyway, uh, Mark, let's get to your picks. You're going to groove us into the weekend. What do you have? A couple of very uh, non-political songs for you this time, Ben, on uh, our segment. Uh, the first one's from Beck, Beck Hansen, but better known as Beck. He's been making records since the 1990s. In fact, his uh, debut album came out 30 years ago this year. Uh, Beck has many different sides to his music, including a funky hip-hop side and a gentle melodic ballad side as well. And this new single is one of those ballads. It's called Thinking About You. I got 15 movies of you playing in my head Chasing the moonlight Watching the ocean turn Mellow side of Beck, thinking about you. I like it, uh, Mark. We have time for one more. What do you have? This one is from the British band Django Django. Their first album came out over a little over 10 years ago. I really like that first album. Uh, could be classified as art rock, but still accessible. And as the years have gone by, this band Django Django have become more successful in their native England. And they've become perhaps a bit more mainstream. They have a new project titled Off Planet that they are releasing in four parts rather than one album all at once. And here's a song from that project. It's called Complete Me and features the British singer Self Esteem. Django Django there featuring self-esteem with some vocals. Complete me. I love it. Let's go out with that, Mark. 
uh, your new music, the best in new music and old favorites, indie rock, singer-songwriters, blues, local and regional music. They have it all at IPR Studio One. Mark Simmet uh, there with his colleagues, Tony Daner and C.C. Mitchell. Mark, thanks for grooving us into the weekend. You have a fine weekend yourself, okay? Thanks, Ben. You too. River to River today produced by Caitlin Troutman and Danny Gear. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.